Welcome back to Beyond Sunday School. And uh, this week, we are continuing our season on looking at Jesus from the perspective of history. Uh, So we've kind of tongue-in-cheek entitled this season, Putting Jesus in His Place. And uh, so we... We're going to spend these next number of weeks uh, just kind of taking a look at uh, at Jesus and trying to apply history and theology to come to a deeper, clearer understanding of who Jesus is. In episode one of this season, we looked at kind of asking the question of why history? Why would we want to look at at Jesus from the perspective of history and how does kind of, how does that even, how does that even work? And uh, so this week we are beginning that process. And, uh, and as we do, you know, we're, we're going to be asking some, some questions like, you know, who did Jesus think he was and uh, you know, what, what really was, his message and, and some of those kinds of things. And over the coming weeks, you, we are going to see how religion and politics, um, culture, all of that uh, went into into Jesus's ministry and what he uh, what he was teaching on, and how some of those folks in his day and age heard him and experienced him. Uh, we're gonna, and I think as we do we are going to find that Jesus is even more subversive and um, even more challenging uh, than we ever could have imagined. And I think also more relevant to our lives uh, than, than we could have ever have imagined. So uh, let's, let's get rolling. And as uh, I guess, before we do, just a reminder, uh, you're going to hear some voices uh, on uh, the video and on the recording tonight. Uh, and uh, these are folks who are here in the Zoom room with me because we record this live Wednesday nights at seven o'clock on Zoom. And if you would like to be in the room, let me know and I will be sure to get you the link so that you can join us and be a part of the conversation. Uh, because those in the room get to interrupt and ask questions and uh, and really hopefully be a part of a, a dialogue that takes place around uh, what we're talking about each week. So those are the voices that you're going to hear. And uh, just, just to remind you, you too can be in the room with us on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock. So uh, let's, let's get rolling here. Uh, we are uh, talking this week, um, about, uh, we're talking about Jesus and, and we're talking about, uh, the kind of where he's, how, how to begin placing him historically. So, uh, before we, before we dive into some of those extra things, some of the deeper stuff, we need to take a look at, uh, some of the indisputable facts right? These are some things that anybody who is even slightly serious about history, uh, who, you know, has done any work on history, uh, they will, they will acknowledge that these are the basic kind of indisputable facts of who Jesus is. 
Now, I've done enough funerals to, to tell you that facts about a person uh, don't make the person. You know, you, it's, it's the stories. It's the memories. It's the impact that a person's words have had on others that truly, truly make a person. But facts are important, especially for major historical figures, because they at least give us some sense of place. They give us some orientation. And, and so as we look at Jesus from the place of history, what we want to try to do is we want to try to get as much of the information as possible uh, onto the table, so to speak. And, uh, and so you can think of these, these next few items, these indisputable, indisputable facts as uh, kind of almost being the tablecloth. These are kind of the things that, that we know and that we are about as certain as we can be um, about anything in history, right? We can be as certain about these facts as we are about the Civil War and some of the things that happened there. So, uh, first, Jesus was most likely born in 4 BC. Now, a lot of people hear that fact and go, wait a minute, I thought Jesus was born in zero, right? Because that would seem to make sense, right? Because BC stands for before Christ, AD, year of our Lord. Um, But that, you know, some of those early dating, you know, was done uh, with less information than we have now. And so uh, most, most scholars are, you know, they're, they're pretty certain that Jesus was born in four BC based on uh, the gospel, the gospel narratives. So that's, that's fact number one. Fact number two, Jesus grew up in Galilee, in Nazareth, near Sephorus. So if you were to, uh, you know, you can, you can pop open a map on the internet and you can still see all of these places. They still exist. And uh, you, can, you can fly over to Israel, land in Tel Aviv, and, uh, and not too long on a, on a little bus ride or a, you know, rent a car. You can be in Galilee. You can, uh, you can see Capernaum. You can, you, know, you can take a boat out onto the, the, the Sea of Galilee. You can see Sephora all lit up at night. Um, and uh, and it's, a, it's a beautiful, beautiful area. So, uh, but this is, this is where Jesus grew up. It was, you know, Nazareth was kind of a backwater town. It was uh, pretty rural. It was um, just not very held in very high regard. Uh, when Jesus calls some of his earliest disciples, um, I, I think it might've been Andrew, uh, but uh, he said, he said, did anything good come out of Nazareth? So, you know, this is, this is where, this is where Jesus grew up and lived. Jesus spoke, uh, most assuredly, Jesus spoke Aramaic. Um, He probably spoke some Hebrew um, because from what we can tell in the gospels, uh, he was able to read the scrolls. He was able to 
you know, engage at the synagogue, which means that uh, Jesus was probably somewhat, you know, somewhat educated in new, new Hebrew. Um, and we have to remember that, you know, Jesus, Jesus was a man of his time, right? So if nobody had taught him Hebrew, he probably wouldn't have known Hebrew. So Jesus was, um, Jesus was pretty well educated by, by his time, by the standards of his time. And, uh, and so, so we, we need to realize that we're not dealing with, even though he came from Nazareth, a backwater town, we're not dealing with, uh, just some, you know, some, you know, bumpkin who, who didn't know anything. Uh, Jesus was pretty well educated. Not only did he definitely speak Aramaic, definitely spoke a good amount of Hebrew, he probably also spoke some Greek. And uh, because there didn't seem to be uh, much issue, uh, at least the, the Gospels, uh, of Jesus communicating uh, with the Roman authority. So he, he must have known enough Greek to, to get around. And that, that was pretty normal, right? Koine Greek, the common Greek of the time was, was kind of the, the lingua franca of, um, of the empire. It was the, the language of, of the day. Uh, sort of like how, you know, uh, English is, is the lingua franca, uh, you know, of, of the world today. Everybody, you know, most, most people, it seems like most people know how to speak a little bit of English. It's just kind of, kind of everywhere, similar to Greek. Uh, and that was, at least in Jesus's world, Greek kind of functioned like that. Um, so he was, he was trilingual. Uh, so Jesus, Jesus was no dummy. Now, um, his public ministry uh, probably began around 28 AD uh, is, is best guess, the best guess scenario. Um, and Jesus called people to repent and announced the kingdom of God using parables as his primary mode of communication. For people who've been in church their whole lives, um, or people who've been in church for just a little bit of time and have read enough of the gospels to know that this, you know, this really, that's not a, that's not an earth shaking, uh, statement. Uh, but no matter, no matter who people are, no matter what their kind of historical perspective are, they're able to, to recognize this and acknowledge this as a fact. Uh, one of the, one of the groups of people that do, work on the historical Jesus, uh, was no, they were known as the Jesus seminar and they went through and kind of picked apart the gospels to decide what were things that Jesus really said. Um, and a lot of what he, what they determined that he really said were things found in the parables. So even the people who, uh, are most critical of the new Testament text, uh, still hold to the fact that Jesus probably uh, taught a lot in parables. So, and that his message was centered around the kingdom of God and a call to repentance. Uh, the other, another thing is that he journeyed around Galilee, proclaiming the message 
And the way that he practiced it was through cures, exorcisms, and sharing table fellowship with a group of people outside the socio-cultural norm. So before we move forward, ladies, as you, as you hear that last, that last little bit here, that he journeyed around Galilee, proclaiming the message and practicing it through cures, exorcisms, and sharing table fellowship with a group of people outside the socio-cultural norm. Why do you think that might be a big deal as a, um, as, as a indisputable fact, so to speak? Huh. And you mean in proving that Jesus was actually a man in history? Yeah, I mean that part part of it um, would is, it could be related to that, but um, but what else strikes you as is just as you look through that kind of list of things? Um, what what do you think is what strikes you as as important or maybe just kind of an odd thing for people to say? Yeah, we can we can buy this as something that that the historical Jesus did. Well, exorcism sort of jumped out at me. Okay. Why? I, mean, I, know, I know he did. Well, because nowadays we think of exorcism as, you know, like the movies and all those scary, terrible things. Right. And if, you know, we don't look at it as the way it was in the new Testament. Yeah. Yeah. Good. And yeah, also it showed, it, it showed his power. Mm-hmm. So. Yep, it showed his power. What else? It showed that he came to uh, minister to everyone, just not the group of people that would think that he came to minister to them, the righteous Jewish people and so forth. I mean, uh, he he met with people that shocked uh, the, the regular Jewish people. He would mm-hmm. go in and uh, with uh, uh, tax collectors and with... Uh, some of the other people that he associated with might be a little surprising to some people. Yeah, absolutely. The part that jumped out at me was, oops, I'm sorry. Go ahead, Dorothy. Who is the one in the tree? I can't think of his name. Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus. Yeah, come down from there, right. That's right. I mean, he just, he just met with all kinds of people. It was just the normal people that you would think that a pastor or a rabbi would meet with. Yep. Yeah, there were multiple times, right, where people would say things like, if he knew who was touching him, he would, dot, 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 right? Um, so, yeah, absolutely. It, which is, it, it, a table fellowship thing is something that we're going to come back to more and more as we go on. Um, Jana, what were you going to say? I was just going to talk about the table fellowship. That jumped out. We can't do cures and we can't do exorcisms, but sharing table fellowship with a group of people outside the socioeconomic, um, I can't see because your screen norm. is a norm. Yeah. Is, is kind of um, teaching us that maybe that's what we should be doing. Yeah. Today. Right. Well, yeah. And I mean, thinking about that, he sought out, like Dorothy said, he sought out the common people. Usually if someone's looking to have power, they don't seek out the common folk. Yep. Go for the rulers and the wealthy and the people that have political clout and all of yep. that. So, yeah, 
Yeah, most people go for the up and comers as opposed to the um, yeah. down and down outers, and- right? <laughs> yep. Yeah, yeah. I, I it's and, and what's so interesting. One of the things that um, that I've found interesting over the years is, you know, sometimes we look at things like ex- cures and exorcisms, and think, wow, those were those just must have been so unique and crazy. Um, but there were a lot of faith healers floating around, um, Palestine at that time. And there were a lot of exorcists floating around at that time. So, so what's interesting is the things that we call miracles, right? The, the cures, the exorcisms, those weren't that big of a deal to the folks back then, (laughs) which is, which is wild. Um, Josephus even, uh, he, in, in his, one of his writings, uh, talks about, uh, he records an account of, of a man named Eliezer, uh, who, uh, was, was doing exorcisms, uh, in, around this time. And this is, this, listen to how he describes this. He says, I've seen a certain man from my own country named Eliezer releasing people afflicted with demons in the very presence of Vespasian and his sons and his generals and the whole cohort of his soldiers. The manner of healing was like, so he took a ring, one that had a root of the sort mentioned by Solomon and inserted it into the nostrils of the demoniac. After which he then drew out the demon through his nostrils. And when the person collapsed to the ground, he warned them that the demon not to return into him ever again, making further appeal to Solomon by reciting the incantations that Solomon had composed. So, you know, this, so there was, there were, there were active, active exorcists and and people doing cures, but the thing they weren't doing was table fellowship with these, with these down and outers. Um, So it it is, it really is. We almost can't underestimate how big of a deal um, Jesus having table fellowship with these uh, socio-cultural uh, you know, folks who are outside the sociocultural norm. So talk about um, exorcism. Yeah. Did I, did I hear some preachers say or something about that? The devil was very busy doing things when Jesus was there. Uh, I don't know if he was trying to disturb the people or what, but the devil, that's why there were a lot of exorcisms. <laughs> uh, and maybe I dreamed that up. I don't know, but I remember hearing that somewhere that the devil was very busy at that time. Interesting. And maybe we don't see it as much now as yeah. they did then. Yeah. Yeah. Or maybe we're just not paying attention. You know, you go, yeah. you go to some places in the world and uh, spiritual warfare uh, and that kind of stuff is still, still a big part of um, still a big part of the mission of the church and the activity of the church. Uh, so you almost wonder you know, are we missing, could we possibly be missing an important thing that we should be, should be about? Um, so continuing, continuing on with some indisputable facts, uh, Jesus called a group of close disciples with 12 gaining special status. And, uh, we're gonna, we're gonna come back to that, uh, in the future. Uh, probably we'll come back to that next week, actually looking, looking at that more in detail and why that was so important. Uh, Jesus's activities, particularly those in relation to the temple, 
brought the wrath of the priestly class in the religious establishment. Um, so when Jesus started messing with the, for lack of a better way of putting it, sacred cows of the, of, of the, of the age, uh, the religious and priestly class, man, they, they did not like it, which leads to the next indisputable point, which is that Jesus was handed over to the Romans and executed as an insurrectionist on a cross. So uh, it's, it's interesting to note that Jesus's final, um, his final conviction, the thing that he was ultimately crucified for was insurrection against the Roman state. And so he was, he was killed on a cross because Pilate ultimately determined at the end of the day uh, that he, that he was uh, competing for the throne of, of Caesar, right? Um, now, did Pilate necessarily want to uh, crucify Jesus? No, because there also didn't seem to be much evidence that he was leading some sort of violent uh, insurrection. It was more of an insurrection of an idea. And I think Pilate was probably savvy enough to understand that if he crucified this, this Jesus of Nazareth, that he might become more powerful in death as a martyr than, than he was in life. And uh, so I think that's why Pilate was probably pretty strong, strongly opposed initially. And then eventually the religious leaders forced his hand and made it so that he had to, he had to move forward here. Um, and uh, so, so Jesus goes to the cross, Barabbas, a known murderer uh, was, was released uh, in his, in his place because that's, the religious people said we, the religious leaders wanted Jesus gone. Um, and they were happy to trade Jesus for, for Barabbas. Uh, now the, the next point here is worded in a, in a very specific way. And it's that Jesus's followers claimed he had been raised from the dead. Um, we're not going to spend a whole lot of time uh, walking through uh, proofs of the resurrection and that kind of thing. The reality is, is that folks who are, the reality is that the folks who are, who are going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead are going to believe that Jesus rose from the dead. Um, people listening to a podcast or watching this on YouTube later who don't believe that Jesus rose from the dead are not going to be convinced by anything uh, that that we can talk about here. Uh, if you are listening to this or watching this later and you want to have a conversation about some of the um, some of the arguments on behalf of the resurrection being uh, historically reliable, I'd love to engage with you on that. So feel free to to reach out to me uh, on any of the social media platforms. And uh, we can have that conversation. Uh, but I wanted to very specifically word it this way, that Jesus's followers claimed he had been raised from the dead. Because then, because what this does is it allows us to get that, that belief as a fact onto the table. Because, because there, there's no question, there's no historical question or doubt that Jesus's followers believed this. 
And, and that's, that's the fact that we're putting on the table. Um, and then uh, finally, Jesus's followers carried on his work and some were persecuted by Jewish and Gentile authorities. So uh, as they, as they, as his followers uh, after his crucifixion sought to carry on the work that Jesus had begun, uh, it is an indisputable fact that they were persecuted. Uh, some of them were martyred and killed. And, uh, and so that's, that's part of the reality of the Christian story is that very early on, uh, this sect of, of people who were seeking to follow Jesus of Nazareth, uh, they did so at their own peril. They did so at great cost of their own lives. And, uh, and so, you know, you have to ask yourself why. Why were they willing uh, to, to go and die um, for, for this idea, for this person, for this, this Christ. So, uh, so those, those are the indisputable facts that, that we are going to try to work from, uh, over the coming weeks. And so where are we headed? Well, we're going to try to answer the question, what did Jesus say and do? Right? Because like I said, facts don't make the man. Um, and while they give us some, some grounding for uh, who he was, they, they don't really tell us much, if anything. And so we really want to wrestle with this question. What did Jesus say and do? And then we want to ask a secondary question. How does this show us what Jesus was trying to achieve and what he thought his mission was really about? For centuries, right? We have people have been arguing, discussing, studying this second question. You know, what what is the mission of the church? Is it to build big churches? Is it to get a lot of people on a Sunday morning? Is it to convert the world? What is the mission? And uh, and so we're we're gonna do our best to try to try to look through. Uh, the lens of history and theology, and, and try to come up with an answer, and, and hopefully one that is is as close as maybe we can reconstruct to how Jesus would answer it. We're going to try to be faithful to the text and to history, and um, and try to wrap our minds and our hands and our hearts around this this question about. Uh, you know, what was Jesus trying to achieve and what did he think his mission was really about? Because if we can understand that, then that gives us such a great clue to how we should be living and what we should be seeking to achieve and what our mission should, should be. So that's, those are the questions that we're, over the next few weeks, we're going to try to wrestle through together. Now, there's a great quote. Uh, that as we as we begin down this rabbit hole, as we begin diving down into into history uh, from the New Testament and its world by Michael Bird and N.T. Wright, they say this: the first century Jewish world, with all its pluriformity, had certain dynamics running through it, not least an undercurrent of potential or actual revolution. Now, that is a really, really important thing to understand, 
that right underneath the surface, as we are reading through the gospel accounts, uh, we have to remember, we have to remember that there was a current of potential or actual revolution just right under the surface. It was always about to erupt because the reality is, is that the Jewish people were constantly looking forward and towards the coming of their Messiah. They so desperately wanted to come out of exile but exile was right where they were. And they still thought that and felt that and experienced that reality. So, so this has to be held. This tension has to be held as we are doing this work because it was always present. And, and so you can't pull apart religion and politics and that kind of thing as we, as we study the Gospels, as we look at who Jesus was. Um, and what did he do? And what was his mission all about? Um, so, uh, so we have to set the stage, right? We have to look at the precursor. We have to look here uh, at the, the introduction, so to speak, uh, to, to Jesus's ministry. And that precursor, that introduction, that preface is John the Baptist. He was Jesus's cousin, and he was setting the stage for Jesus to come, for Jesus's life and his ministry and his mission. It's, it's, you, you can't pull it too far apart from what John the Baptist was doing. Now, what was John the Baptist doing? Well, he was preaching a message of repentance and baptism out at the Jordan River in the wilderness. That's what he was doing. And again, because of the existence of this undercurrent of, revol of revolution, this, this existence of a desire to come out from underneath the Roman Empire, we cannot pull apart the political and the religious from John the Baptist's ministry. He hit on both things. Right, his his primary one of his primary targets, one of his primary preaching targets, was was Herod, who was a you know just a, a immoral, corrupt uh, king leader. He had he he used the system for his own gain. He had you know he had married his brother's wife. He just he was just not a good man. And he lost, he lost the right to be known as the king of the Jews in John's mind and in his preaching. And so Herod was, was a target for, for him. Uh, and then you have, you know, John preaching at the Jordan River, uh, which is kind of this uh, type of a new exodus, right? John is, John is saying, hey, just like the people of Israel came through the Red Sea to the Jordan River and threw it into the promised land, so too do we come here to the Jordan River and, and experience a new exodus. Now, the hard part about this, or one of the things that really begins to challenge some of the religious leaders' thinking, 
is that he was preaching a water baptism that that cleansed people. And what he was saying was, hey, you can come here and get baptized in water and have the same and that will have the same effect as what you were doing at the temple was sacrificing animals and in the whole sacrificial system. John was challenging all of that, which which we cannot we cannot underestimate. Um, Wright and Bird put it this way. He says, anybody inviting those who wish to do so to pass through an, initiate, an initiatory rite of this kind was symbolically saying, here is the true Israel coming through the waters like Israel through the Red Sea and the Jordan itself, the true Israel that will be vindicated by Yahweh right? That will be vindicated by the Lord. And so to, he, so what he's doing is he is inaugurating this idea of what the true Israel would look like, who the true Israel is, you know, this, this true Israel coming out of exile and back into a full fellowship with God. And now remember the exile, you know, I mean, we, we looked at this under the, when, when we did our season on the historical background of, of the monarchy of Israel, right? They, the, the Southern kingdom fell uh, in 587 BC. And while some came back, you know, about 80 years later uh, under Ezra and Nehemiah, while there was a physical turn from ex- return from exile, uh, most, most still held to a, spiritual exile that they 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 really hadn't come back the temple had lost its glory it wasn't it wasn't the same when when some of the elders saw the new temple the restored temple uh, they were heartbroken and they cried and they wept because it wasn't the same temple that they were coming home to and so while while physically they were back in the promised land uh, so many felt as though spiritually they were still exiled. They had not been reunited. They had not uh, been justified or reconciled back to their God. So, so we can't, we cannot underestimate what was happening uh, with John the Baptist. So as we continue on, uh, you know, we, People talk about Jesus as fulfilling the offices of prophet, priest, and king. Uh, we're going to spend a little bit of time tonight talking about prophet, uh, the biblical type or category that Jesus's public persona primarily fits into, is that of prophet. Now, again, this is his public persona, so this is the the public facing side of Jesus when he when he interacted with the people. What would they have, you know, what would they have said? You know, how would they have described Jesus? How might he have described himself? Well, as we look at it, uh, and as we look at the text, prophet is, is that category. His disciples, witnesses that saw him, Pharisees, opponents, and even the early church all put him in this category of prophet. In Acts 3.22, uh, Peter quotes Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19. Um, let me read uh, 
Acts 3.22 for you. He says, uh, so Peter here is, is, you know, preaching and it's near the end. Uh, and, he, and, he, and as he's preaching, he says, for Moses said, the Lord, your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You must listen to everything he tells you. Anyone who does not listen to him will be completely cut off from their people. So by the time that Peter is preaching post Pentecost, the understanding is that Jesus was this prophet uh, that Moses is talking about here in Deuteronomy 18, 18 through 19. And then most importantly, Jesus understood himself to be a prophet. So how do we know that? Well, we know that because we can look at some of the major prophets and we can see how Jesus, uh, how Jesus talked about himself and his mission and how it relates to those prophets. So first you have Ezekiel. Uh, just like Ezekiel, Jesus predicted that the glory of God would leave the temple. You can read about, you can read the comparisons in Ezekiel 10, 1 through 5, 15 through 12, 11, 22 through 23. And you can compare that with what Jesus said in Matthew 23, 38 and Luke 13, 35. We're not going to read all these passages because we just, we just don't have time, but the references are there. Um, for those of you watching on YouTube, you can see it on the screen, um, and, uh, and, you know, for those of you that are listening on the podcast, I guess just pause <laughs> and try to write these down or go to YouTube and check it out. Um, then he also, uh, there's also a connection between Jesus and Jeremiah. Jesus risked being called a traitor while claiming that he was the spokesman for God. You can compare that to Jeremiah 7, 11 with Matthew 21, 12 through 13 and Luke 19, 45 through 48. It was, you know, Jesus, Jesus saying that, that he is the true spokesman uh, for, the, for God was, was a big, big deal. And it got Jeremiah in all kinds of trouble, challenging the, the power structures, just like Jesus. Jesus also has a connection to Jonah, right? Jesus predicted judgment on Jerusalem using symbolism from Jonah. You can read about that in Matthew 12, 38 through 42, in Luke 11, 29 through 32. It's, this is significant um, for him to make that connection to Jonah being swallowed up right uh, for three days and three nights and, and saying the same would happen to the Son of Man. Uh, so you'll, you'll see that in those passages. Uh, and then Jesus connects, Jesus's message and preaching connects to Amos, the prophet Amos, where uh, Jesus argued that the coming day, uh, would it be one of darkness and not light for Jerusalem? We see that uh, at the end of, of Matthew and in Luke uh, 24, especially where, um, you know, where he's talking about what is going to happen on this day of judgment. And, you know, it's not going to be a day of light, but it would be a, it would be a horrible and harsh day of judgment, which is exactly what, what Amos predicts in uh, Amos 5, 18 through 20. We see those, uh, we see those echoes of Amos 5, 18 through 20, reverberating through Jesus's entire ministry of preaching. And then the big one, the really big one, Elijah and Elisha. Jesus explicitly uses them as examples as he self-describes his ministry in Luke 
425 through 27. And uh, so let me, let, let's read that one real quick. Um, where, he, so he's, he's describing things. And uh, this is, this is the place where uh, Jesus is, is opening his, his public ministry, right? And he reads from the prophet Isaiah and uh, you know, everyone's like, oh man, he's so good. And he, in verse 21, he says, uh, today's, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing this, the scripture about how the spirit of Lord is the spirit of the Lord is on him. He's anointed me to proclaim the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So everyone gets excited we start talking about proclaiming the year of the Lord's favor, and then, uh, and they're they're kind of they're amazed. They're like, "Hey, isn't this Joseph's kid? Like, what? You know how does how does this how does this happen?" And he says, "You know, hey, you're going to quote this proverb to me, physician, heal yourself." And uh, you know, and then he says this, beginning in verse twenty four. Chapter four, verse 24, he says, truly, I tell you, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years, and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet none of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. And at that, the people of the synagogue were furious when they heard it. You see, there was no greater, no greater prophet uh, at this time than Elijah and Elisha. Th- those two were, uh, were kind of the, the, the top dogs. And so Jesus saying this and teaching this, he places himself squarely in their line, which is why later on in the gospels, when uh, Jesus asks uh, the question, you know, who do people say that I am? And one of the things is they say you're Elijah, because that was the belief that Elijah would come back, that he would return, and that he would he would lead people out of out of exile. So, uh, so Jesus places himself firmly in this place of prophet. This this is his public facing. Uh, identity or role. Wright and Bird say it this way. Here we begin to see both parallel and distinction. Jesus's ministry was so like that of Elijah that they could be easily confused. He too was announcing to the faithless people of Yahweh that their covenant God would come to them in wrath. But at the same time, he was also acting out a different message, one of celebration and inauguration which burst the mold of the Elijah model. You see, Elijah was kind of doom and gloom at the end of the, t- at the, end of the day. He was, he was preaching against the coming, uh, the coming exile. Jesus, while is speaking truth and is saying, hey, if you don't respond, if you don't repent, if you don't pursue the kingdom of God, then it's going to get bad. Jesus was also saying, 
but God is here. He is present in me, inaugurating the new age, the one that is to come. The time of reconciliation is at hand. The time of restoration is at hand. Justification is at hand. Righteousness is here. Jesus was preaching uh, not just wrath, but celebration because in himself, he was going to reconcile all things because the covenant God had finally come and it was present among them and was about to do something that everybody had been waiting for, but nobody was going to notice. So uh, that is where we are going to end this week. And next week, we will dive even deeper into this, uh, looking at uh, more specifically looking at uh, Jesus's prophet and how does that how does that work itself out and what was his message like? Um, how did people hear him? And uh, so that's that's where we're that's where we're going next week. So uh, as we wrap this up this week, any delays? Have any questions? Thoughts floating around your heads? Um, things that things that jumped out at you. I like the part in back to the very beginning when you were talking about how Jesus probably was well educated, mm-hmm. and you said he was no dummy. <laughs> yeah, but but then he when he preached, he preached in stories so that people, the regular people or anybody, could understand what he was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. And what's so interesting is the regular people tended to get the stories more so than the religious elite, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> which is, which is pretty cool. Yeah. Yeah. That's good. That's good. Anything else? There's a lot to absorb. A lot of stuff here. Yeah. A lot of stuff. A lot of stuff. Um, the good thing is it's recorded, so you can go back and, and jump <laughs> in and again. see see what see see the different things that you want to think more on. So, um, yeah. Well, ladies, thanks for being with me. Those of you who are watching this later, thanks for listening and watching. Uh, if you are listening to this or watching this, I would encourage you to please like, rate, comment, share. All of that helps uh, other people find this uh, this podcast, and hopefully, hopefully, it'll be as helpful to them as it is to to you. So, thanks again, and until next week, love well, my friends. <laughs>